This is Kale Clark. This is the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Looking at the conclusion of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, the series, Can You Handle the Truth? And Paul has dropped a lot of truth bombs on us throughout these 16 chapters. Let's look at the conclusion of the letter. Open up your Bible to Romans chapter 16, starting with verse 17. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So that is the conclusion of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. So let's let's unpack these final verses here together. So here's what we need to to pick up on in these first few verses. He, he, He gives a warning right off the bat in verse 17 about false teachers who are in their midst. And in some of his other letters, he also warns about uh, false teachers of the faith. And this is a problem, even in the early church. Um, we're very tempted to look back on church history and think everyone in, in, in the first century was just kind of singing kumbaya and, and everything was peaceful and lovely. But there were problems at all times in the church, even going back to the beginning. There were always sinners in the church. <laughs> And some false teachers as well. Some of them outside the church, some of them even inside the church, which is even more insidious. Now, we don't really know who these false teachers were, but uh, we do know this. He says that they basically caused disunity. He says, watch out, essentially, for those who cause divisions, put obstacles in your way. It's against the teaching that you were taught. Keep away from them. Avoid them. For such people, in verse 18, are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So this is what's going on here. And when he says that they're serving their own appetites, uh, another way to translate this maybe is uh, their own belly. It's the Greek word koilia, koilia. And we see this uh, come up in another one of St. Paul's letters as well, in his letter to the Philippians. Let's look it up really quickly. This is what St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 18. 
He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our commonwealth is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. So this is very similar to what he says in Philippians 3. He talks about false teachers there. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. Their glory is their shame. So their God is the belly. It doesn't always mean... um, overeating or, or something to do with food. And and some have suggested that maybe he's talking about the weak and the strong. He's talking about those who, uh, uh, you know, are adhering and trying to force other people to adhere to the kosher food laws in the new covenant time. Could be, could be a pun on the use of appetites, belly, food, haha, I get it. But it probably just means all of the sense appetites, all the sensuality, if you will, sense and sensuality that, that people can be drawn into indulging uh, very often in a sinful way. The New Testament is replete with examples of false teachers who have unfortunately indulged uh, their appetites in many illicit ways, especially in regard to sexuality. So very often these guys are very eloquent. They're very clever. They're very well-spoken. They're very crafty. They're great salespeople, and they are able to sway a lot of people. Uh, into their uh, into their web, if you will, they entrap them, and so Saint Paul says, "Hey, it's kind of." And he uses a, some irony here. He says, "Sometimes they're able to convince simple-minded people to follow them, but you have to kind of remain, in a sense, simple, innocent, not simple-minded. But it's very much like what Jesus says: you have to be as wise as serpents, yet as innocent as doves. So be." innocent, retain your innocence. And Paul says, look, don't worry about them. At the end of the day, stay faithful to the teaching. God will crush Satan under your feet. He says that in verse 20. And maybe he's thinking about the false teachers themselves being crushed, but it it probably also is an echo of the first gospel, as it's known, the proto-evangelium, way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and this is right after the original sin, Adam and Eve have fallen. And God is speaking to the Satan, to the serpent. I will put enmity, total opposition, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that's obviously a a reference to the woman being Mary, ultimately, and the offspring of the woman, Jesus, the Messiah, crushing the head of the Satan, even though he will be seemingly mortally wounded on the cross. And he did die, of course, but... He is resurrected, comes back to life. And so they will share in the victory of Christ over Satan. And Satan is all about lies, all about false teaching, all about division, all about evil. And so Paul says, you're going to overcome if you stick close to Christ. And then Paul sort of has this uh, word of grace, if you will. When he says this in verse 20, he says, the God of peace is going to... It's interesting to think of a God of peace crushing something, you know. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet very soon. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And so this really goes back to something he said at the beginning of the letter. And you'll you'll see here that he ties things together really, really nicely. It's really well done by Paul. He he brings back themes that he 
brought up at the start of Romans, and he kind of bookends them here. In chapter 1, verse 7, he said, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have here, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you right at the end. So it's really nice. And so now there's another section here that starts uh, starting with verse 21 and going all the way through to verse 23. And just as Paul earlier in chapter 16 has greeted a whole bunch of people in the church at Rome, some of whom he knew, like Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, and others who he had only heard about. Now he gives greetings from the people that are with him. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Romans from Corinth. And of course, we know that Paul spent significant time in Corinth and eventually wrote two letters, at least two letters. There's, there's another letter, at least one more that our, uh, archaeologists haven't turned up yet that he wrote to the Corinthians. That'd be cool to find. I hope they do find it one day. But he's talking about people that are with him where he is currently residing. The first person he mentions, of course, is Timothy. In verse 21, he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. And, and by the way, they're not really his relatives or kinsmen. Uh, they're they're actually like, they're fellow Jews. Like they're not they're not part of his extended family. They're not they're not cousins, but they are all Hebrews, of course. And so Timothy, we all know really really well. Um, six of his letters that Paul writes, he kind of puts Timothy up there as almost like the the associate editor. Second <laughs> uh, Corinthians, the letters to the Thessalonians, one and two Thessalonians, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Colossians. Uh, Philemon. Uh, Timothy is kind of the co-author of these works. And of course, then there are two letters that Paul writes to Timothy after they've been separated. And he's kind of encouraging Timothy as a young bishop in the church. Now, who's the next guy? People are kind of divided as to who this is. He says, uh, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. Who is Lucius? Well, some people think it's actually Luke the Evangelist. Uh, Luke, Lucius, maybe, maybe it's possible. It's certainly possible. We know that uh, Luke did accompany Paul on many of his missionary journeys, but it might also be another guy from the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 1. It mentions a Lucius of Cyrene. We don't really know. There are a lot of guys named Lucius out there, so could have been anybody. And then there's Jason, and uh, Jason is, the, in all likelihood, the Jason who appears in Acts, chapter 17. And Paul really has a wild time in Thessalonica, and Jason kind of helps him out and gives him a place to stay. So Sipater is probably the same guy mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, Sopater of Berea, just might be a different way of saying the same name. And then there's Tertius. This is really cool. In verse 22, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Well, hang on here. I thought Paul is the author of this letter. Well, Paul did write it, but he used a scribe. He hired a professional scribe named Tertius. And this was very common in the ancient world. Sometimes the person who wrote the letter would insert themselves into the text. And that's so this guy, we don't know anything about him, but he, he is well noted for all of eternity, at least until the return of Christ, because, hey, his name is in there in, in Romans, the most famous letter ever written. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. So it seems like he was also a believer in Christ and part of the church. And so just so just so people know that the, the letter does come from Paul, another thing that he would sometimes do is even if you hired a scribe to write for you, which was the common practice, sometimes you would, in the end, you'd sort of grab the 
the quill and, and mark on the papyrus yourself. And this is exactly what St. Paul does at the end of his letter to the Galatians. He says in uh, chapter 6, verse 11 of Galatians, that kind of the conclusion of that letter, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So that's why they know, oh yeah, this is Paul. This is the way he writes. Now, why is he writing with large letters? Interesting thought. Some people think he couldn't see very well, that he was struggling with uh, poor eyesight. Now, why would he be struggling with poor eyesight? He didn't, he didn't have access to LASIK eye surgery back then. Some people think that when he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, remember there's this blinding light, and Paul was, in fact, struck blind for a time. He got his sight back eventually, but maybe he had permanent after effects and he just couldn't see that well, which would have been a great cross for a scholar, of course, like Paul. It's only speculation, but some people think maybe this is what he meant when he said he had this thorn in the flesh and three times he asked God to take it away from him. And Jesus told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. We'll never know if that was really the weakness. Some think that Paul had other issues and we'll never know. We'll never know. We can talk to him hopefully in heaven about it. But that's kind of an interesting thought there. And it's kind of fun that Tertius put his name in the letter there as well. And then who's Gaius? Gaius, there are a lot of people in the, in the Roman Empire named Gaius. In all likelihood, though, it's the same guy that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. Remember, he is in Corinth. That's where he's writing from. He gave Paul a place to stay. Um, it's possible he had a house church in his own home. Erastus, who is that guy? Erastus was the treasurer of the city of Ephesus. He's mentioned in Acts 19, verses 21 and 22, and also maybe in 2 Timothy 4.20. There's actually uh, an inscription that's been discovered, according to uh, Douglas Moo, in Corinth. And it actually refers to a guy named Erastus. And it, it, it really essentially means the, the director of public works. Um, that was the title that was in the inscription. So, in fact, uh, that, that might have been part of his, his career. And uh, anyway, so official there in the city. Quartus, we don't know who that guy is. Cool name, though. And so now we get to the final, final, final part of the letter, what's called the doxology. So this doxology, and you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. This is the final piece of the letter, the final paragraph. And the word doxology literally means a word of glory. Logos means word. Doxa in Greek means glory, doxology. And we have sort of a doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. A word of glory, literally, the power and the glory. Now, that's not part in uh, of the original prayer. It was added later on in all likelihood. We do say this at Mass, though, when we say the uh, the Our Father. So what here Paul is writing is this word of glory. And he's reminding us really that all of this, all of what we do here is for the glory of God. In verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations. What's he talking about there, the prophetic writings? He's talking about the Old Testament. And we've seen all throughout the letter to the Romans how Paul made incredible use of the Old Testament prophecies pointing to their fulfillment in Christ and the gospel. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of 
faith, the obedience of faith. And this is something that he said way back in the beginning of the letter, the obedience of faith. And this is really the, the, um, the point here is, is that when we believe, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just an intellectual ascent. We have to actually change our life. That's what it means to repent, to turn ourselves around, to go in the other direction. And believe never means simply to know something. It means to become obedient to. Believe and obey the gospel. And so in chapter 1, verse 5, he talked about the obedience of faith. And right, right back here at the end, it comes up once again. So it's a nice, nice book ends there here in Romans. So we need to do the exact same thing too. We need to give glory to God through our lives. And, and we can really apply this last little section here, especially the part about false teaching. This is always a threat in the church through all ages. And really there are, there are three things that happen with false teachers, according to St. Paul, when you read this chapter. And uh, as Douglas Moo says in his commentary on Romans, number one, they serve themselves, the false teachers, rather than Jesus Christ. Essentially, they become cults of personality. The leader becomes the important one. And I once heard about a Catholic organization. I won't say uh, its name or who its leader was, but I once met uh, someone who used to work for this organization. They said, you know, it always struck me as odd that the leader of this organization, this ministry, you walk through the halls of their headquarters and there are portraits of this person all over the place as if they were some sort of, a, it's like a president, you know, uh, pictures of George Washington or something. It just, it seemed to be a sort of a cult of personality. So this is often true of false teachers. Number two, false teachers can tend to be very crafty and effective speakers, very persuasive. Number three, they tend to create divisions in the church instead of unity. So Paul is basically saying this. These are their motives, serving themselves. The means that they use are craftiness and persuasiveness. The results are divisions rather than unity. That is not a good thing. So instead of focusing on the glory of God, which we should do, and St. Paul encourages us to do, and the unity of the church, Pride really seeps in, and we all have to be on our guard with pride. It's the the sin of the devil. Uh, he fell because of pride. Lucifer becomes Satan because of pride, gets kicked out of heaven. And it is always a threat. Sin is always crouching at the door, and pride is there as well. So part of the reason why people fall into this uh, trap is because the media, the world, people out there, they tend to eat something up. If it is new, if it, listen, no theologian, no priest, no preacher, no Catholic is going to get on television. If they say, I believe in the scriptures, I believe in the teachings of the catechism, that's not going to get you famous because it's not new. It's not news. Heresy is what will get you in the papers and on the internet. The gospel is free of charge, but let me tell you, heresy certainly comes with a very, very serious price. So, Great warnings from St. Paul as we continue on, and a good word at the end that we need to do more than simply study. We need to do more than simply read about Romans, understand it. We need to apply it to our lives so we become the saints that God has created us to be, to give glory to God, not only in this life, but in the next. Thanks for joining me for our study on St. Paul's magnificent letter to the Romans. I'm Cale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained. 
Don't go away now. We've got the Q&A mailbag opening up right now. All right, welcome back to our Q&A mailbag segment here on The Faith Explained. You can send your questions to me at this email address, faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. You can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And this question comes to me via email, and it's from Ashlyn, writing from Modesto, California, listening on 840 AM Relevant Radio. So she says, hi, Kale. I have a question about the prayer in the Mass that goes like this. May the Lord accept the sacrifice from your hands for the praise and glory of his name. Who is this referring to? Your hands. Who is the your? Is it the priest? Is it Jesus? And the sacrifice. Is it the Mass? The Eucharist that is consecrated? The Passion? Is it our sacrifice from our hands? Thanks for answering. Really good question, Ashlyn. And when the new English translation of the Mass came out around the year 2010, 2011 or so, there was some great instruction that was issued uh, by the Archdiocese of New York on this very prayer. And uh, I actually, at the time, I, I had uh, uh, created an iPhone app, uh, also an Android app as well, called the New Mass. And it was all about the new English translation of the Mass. And I remember going into this in some detail. And this is what, um, this is what the Archdiocese of New York uh, said about this. It said that, quote, the prayer over the gifts, which concludes the preparation of the gifts, is preceded by a prayer in which the priest celebrant asks those present to pray that the sacrifice about to be offered will be acceptable to God the Father. And this prayer actually came into the Mass in the ninth century. And it was addressed at first, not to the people, it was addressed to the clergy that were in the sanctuary. And the response that was given was done in a very low voice, you know, sato vache, couldn't really hear it. And if the priest himself was celebrating alone, uh, he would simply do it by himself. But in the early 20th century, as part of the liturgical movement, the response to this prayer became one of the acclamations of the people. And there was a growing understanding that the sacrifice of the Mass belonged to all the baptized, not just to the pre-celebrant. So there's kind of a shift in the emphasis of this particular prayer from this, from this being the sacrifice of the priest alone to the acknowledgement that it was the sacrifice of the entire assembly, the priest, ministers, and people. So the new translation of the Mass makes it really, really clear that there is only one sacrifice and that this sacrifice belongs both to the priest and to the people. And the people make this response after they, after they rise, after they, they stand. And it's interesting to note that all responses to a prayer of the priest are made when you're standing at Mass. It's kind of interesting to think about that. A lot of people haven't noted that uh, in particular. So while the sacrifice is, is that of the priest and the people, it is, of course, offered at the hands of the priest who stands in the person of Christ. So as we move towards the Eucharistic prayer, it reinforces this truth. The sacrifice is offered to the praise and glory of the Father for the salvation of all present and for the entire Holy Church. And that's, that was also another new word that was added into the translation, the Holy Church. It was in the original Latin, but it wasn't in the old English translation. So here's the new translation of the prayer. The priest celebrant says, Pray, brethren, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable 
to God the Almighty Father. And then the people rise, they stand and reply, May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name for our good and the good of all his holy church. So it is offered through the hands of the priest, but it's it's the sacrifice of all the people. That's why the priest says right before that, my sacrifice and yours. So this is a very, very um, uh, great explanation here from the Archdiocese of New York. Here's some additional info on where you can find this concept in the in the Bible, by the way. And uh, this was a, a little piece written by Father, Father Brian Babick from the Diocese of Charleston. It's interesting that um, this is a very biblical response. May the Lord accept a sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and the good of all his holy church. In the second book of Samuel, there's a plague that befalls the people of Israel. And the prophet Gad comes to the king, King David, and says, look, it's probably a good idea to make a sacrifice to God in prayer and so that God will take away this plague. And so David sets this in motion. He obtains what's needed for the sacrifice. And this is what he says, may the Lord your God accept the sacrifice at your hands. That's what he says to the person, the man who will be offering this up. And so this is what we we do at Mass, the sacrifice. We call it the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It's a representation of Christ's one perfect self-sacrifice on the cross. And so we are not, it's very common for non-Catholics to mischaracterize the Mass, to caricature, make a caricature of it in a sense and say that, hey, you're re-crucifying Christ again and again and again. That's not what we're doing. We're we are re-perpetuating the one perfect sacrifice of Christ. We are participating in it. It is made present to us, or we're made present to it, if you will, through mystical time travel. In fact, the actual word that the New Testament uses for this is anamnesis. Do this, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's the word anamnesis. And it kind of sounds like almost like amnesia, but we're not forgetting. We are remembering. It's more than simply remembering it's making present. That's what it really means, to be made present. So we are made present through mystical time travel to the one perfect sacrifice of Christ. Now, this, this phrase in, in, in the liturgy, for the praise and glory of his name, where does that come from? It comes from Psalm 50. That's where it says, this is God talking here, those who offer praise as a sacrifice glorify me. That's, that's amazing. It fits right in. The way to offer praise to God and give him glory is by continuing to offer this one sacrifice of Christ. Make it present to the people. We are made present to it. This is how we are reconciled to God. And this is what the book of Revelation talk, talks about as well in terms of this glory. All of those who are in heaven say, salvation comes from our God and from the Lamb. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving. Honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. So great question, Ashlyn. It's very biblical. It's very theological. It's a good base for this. And I hope that helps to shed some light on your question. Excellent question. Anybody else listening, you can send me your query about the Catholic faith. I'll try to answer it on the air. You can reach me, Kale Clark, at this email address, faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Find me on the X app at Kale Clark, and I'll catch you later today, 5 p.m. Central Live, for the Kale Clark Show, only on Relevant Radio. Keep it locked in, share the podcast with a friend.